Well, our text for this morning is from our first reading from Isaiah chapter 35. I am going to be showing those verses on the screen this morning, but if you would like to follow along in one of our church Bibles, Isaiah chapter 35 is found on page 595. Page 595. As we begin, first of all, I have to do something fairly quickly and explain a little bit to you about how prophecy actually worked in the Old Testament when God would speak to a prophet and give the prophet a vision, an oracle of the future. That prophet would proclaim that vision or write it down and it would be this just amazing, beautiful view of the future and what was to come. But if you were to take that vision and that view and look at it from the side, you would see that there's different components, different mountains, different mountain ranges, different events coming in the future that is perhaps separated by large and immense gaps of time. It's called the telescoping of prophecy because like an old telescope that you could collapse down into one single unit, yet you could also expand it out uh, to its full extension. Again, here in Isaiah chapter 35, what Isaiah the prophet is seeing is three different things. First of all, he's seeing something that's going to happen in his fairly immediate future, 538 BC, BC, which is the return of God's people from exile in Babylon, where they've been for 70 years, and they return in 538 BC to Jerusalem. That's part of what Isaiah is talking about here. But Isaiah is also talking about something that would happen 500 years later, and that is Christmas and the birth of Christ and the ministry of Christ and his death and his resurrection. That is the very first advent, the first coming of Christ. But what Isaiah is also showing us here in Isaiah chapter 35 is the second advent, the second coming of Christ when he will return in all of his glory. And again, Isaiah kind of, to use a very technical theological term mushes that all together. He compacts and compresses all of that future together into this one amazing vision, Isaiah chapter 35. I think it's helpful for us to understand that here as we begin. We're in the Christmas season, the Advent season. We've been slowing down and focusing on these different prophecies of Isaiah and these great gifts that God gives to us in Christ. The gift of hope and peace. We saw that the last few weeks. The, the gift of love, which we'll see next week. Today, our focus on the great gift of joy. Joy. I mean, here we are in the holiday season. We love all of our different uh, songs, you know, deck the halls with boughs of holly, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. Tis the season to be jolly, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la. You know what? What if I'm not feeling particularly jolly all the time or joyful all the time? But this gift of joy and this theme of joy is found throughout the Bible. It is almost incessant how often God is speaking to us and even commanding us to be joyful. Remember the words of St. Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, rejoice, exclamation mark. That is an imperative. That is a command. We're actually commanded to rejoice. First Thessalonians, Paul says, always be joyful. 
I find this to be one of the strangest of all of God's commands. Because most of God's commands, God is commanding us and calling us to do something. But in this command to be joyful, He is also in part calling us not simply to do something, but to feel something, a feeling, an emotion deep within. Joy is a, is a deep contentment. It's a type of happiness that isn't dependent upon our particular external circumstances. I can't turn my emotions on and off as simple as that. You know, as St. Augustine said, Lord, command us what you will, but grant what you command. You know, God, you are the one who has to help me to obey this command to be joyful, to be joyful always. So what do we do? Well, here in Isaiah chapter 35, there's lots of things that we could mine the depths of this passage for, but two things I hope that we see today. First of all, Isaiah chapter 35 is showing us the, the essential problem of the human condition. And he's first of all showing us why joy is so elusive. Why this joy is so difficult to find and certainly difficult to hold on to. It slips through our fingers like sand. First of all, he's showing us this human condition and why joy is so difficult for us to find and to hold on to. But secondly, Isaiah is also at least hinting at and showing us how we can have at least a little bit more of that deep and abiding joy in our life. Why is joy hard to come by? And how can we have just a little bit more of it? That's what we'll see in our text. So first of all, why is it so hard? And why is it so elusive? What is our problem as human beings? Well, we skip all the way down to verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 35, where he concludes by saying this, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, what is this talking about? Again, remember the telescoping, the prophecy, and how he kind of mushes and compacts things together. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. That's where Jerusalem is with singing. Well, first of all, what Isaiah is prophesying is 538 B.C. When the Jewish people, God's people, Persian king Cyrus issues a new decree, says all of you can return home. And so literally they return to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, with rejoicing and singing 538 B.C. They had lost their home. They had been exiled. So that's first of all what he's showing us here. But if you remember that story, we've studied it here at Our Father. You know, they returned to Jerusalem, I'm sure, with great joy and with great singing. But what did they find when they got back to Jerusalem in 538 B.C.? They found rubble. And they found the charred remains of a once glorious temple and a once glorious city. And when they rebuilt the temple, the people who never knew the old temple, they were rejoicing. And isn't this wonderful? But it says in the book of Ezra that the old men who remembered the former temple were wailing and crying in sorrow. It certainly isn't the everlasting joy that Isaiah is speaking about here. 
And what we find here in this great story of the exile, the homelessness of God's people, and in their return back home, that story is just a much smaller story and an echo of the larger story of the Bible itself and of us as human beings. The story of the Jewish people's losing their home in exile in Babylon and then their return is just a smaller version of the grander, more epic story of the entire Bible, the story that is true of all human beings, of all times, and of all places. That all of us are homeless. All of us have lost our true home and are living as exiles in this world. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. Genesis chapter 3, where we lost because of our rebellion against God. We decided we didn't want him really or need him. We lost our true home. We're removed from the garden and we're removed from the very presence of God. Psalm 90 literally says God is our dwelling place. God himself is our home. And what is a home? An ideal home is a place of joy. Home is a place where you make sense. Home is a place where you fit in. Home is a place of great comfort and of peace. It's a place of rest. And Ildo home is a place of healing. You know, why is it when you go on a long vacation, why is being on the road kind of a wearying thing? When you've got a room, you've got a bed, you've got a roof over your head. It's not the same, is it? I mean, all of you know the experience of going on a long trip and coming back home and finally sleeping in your own bed, and it feels so good. Actual homelessness is brutalizing to human beings. To literally, truly have no home and to go and to live outside, to go and live in a park. I mean, a park is a wonderful thing, but it's not where we're supposed to live. To live outdoors in a park and that's where you sleep and that's where you eat and that's where you wash and that's where you do other biological functions. I mean, to live in a park, to homelessness, it destroys the park, but the park and the outdoors and the homelessness destroys you. It wears you down physically and it wears you down deeply, spiritually and psychologically in every single way we could possibly imagine. And what the meta-narrative of the Bible and what we see hinted at here in Isaiah is that that is the fundamental human condition. We've lost our true home. We've lost God. We are exiles. We are homeless wanderers, spiritually speaking, in this world. And I know, of course, many of you here today are Christians. But perhaps some of you are not. Whether you are a Christian here today or you're not a Christian here today, wherever you are, you know deep down inside, deep down inside, you know that just somehow things aren't right. There is an emptiness there. There is a need. There is an ache that you have for something that we're trying to fill with career or money or alcohol or wonderful things like families and kids. We're all trying to fill that in some way. And even if you're, again, if you're not a Christian, you know that. You know, there was a German philosopher, 
atheist, existentialist philosopher, Martin Heidegger. He's writing in the late 20s and the 30s, 40s, 50s, even into the 60s. He died in the 70s. Martin Heidegger was trying, you know, as an atheist, as a human, this human condition, trying to, to come up with a, a way of understanding as we're just born and we're thrown into this, you know, godless universe and, and, and this feeling that we all have. And in the German, he called it this. Unheimlichkeit. Unheimlichkeit. Um, we sometimes translate that as an uncanniness. There is a deep disturbance within us. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, would actually call it a nausea, this sort of deep thing within us, this need that we have, this unheimlichkeit. Literally, the German means something like a not-feeling-at-home-ness. A not-feeling or not-being-at-home-ness in this world. This is why joy is so hard to find. And if we have a moment of it, it slips through our fingers like sand. Unheimlichkeit. We just aren't fully at home in this world. What's the answer? Where does that joy come from? Biblically, what's the answer? Well, Isaiah in verses 1 and 2 is, again, giving us some insight and some clues here. He writes, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. These are beautiful, fertile places. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now, what is Isaiah speaking of here? Again, remembering that, that telescoping of prophecy, mushing it all together. This is speaking about the second coming of Christ. God, the great king, returning to this world and all of his his glory they shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God and this is a total restoration of all of this world making this world our home once more we will dwell in the presence of God he will wipe every tear from our eyes that's what Isaiah is speaking of here ah but look a little closer at verse 1 Verse 1 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Now, what is the crocus? It's not just a heavy metal band from the 80s. For the eight of you who know what I'm talking about. A crocus is a flower. Most importantly, it is the very first flower to bloom before any of the other flowers before this you know abundant blossoming of flowers before all of that occurs the crocus is the very first flower to bloom in the spring and in northern climates where there's snow or ice the crocus actually will blossom through the snow as if to say, spring is on the way. It's not here yet. 
But spring is on the way, and here I am as proof that it is coming. And in the wilderness, the crocus, it can lie dormant even for years. And again, when the rain comes, the crocus, the first to flower. Now, is that wilderness still deadly? Yes. Is that uh, desolate place still lonely and sad? Yes, in so many ways. Is it fully our home? No. But when the crocus blooms, what does it mean? It means hope. It means things are changing. It isn't here yet in its fullness. It's not the full restoration. It's not all of the abundant blossoming that will take place and all of those pools of water and everything that Isaiah is describing here. But it's saying it's happening. It's already beginning even now. So what do we see here with this imagery of the crocus? This isn't the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the first advent of Christ. This is Christmas. When God came into this world, not with all of his glory and all of his might, but he came into the world as silent as snow falling on the ground. And John the Baptist in our gospel reading is in prison. John, a great prophet, more than a prophet, Jesus says, preparing the way for the Lord. And I don't know if John the Baptist understood about the telescoping and the mushing together of the prophecy because he was expecting when that messianic age came and when the Messiah came, that day of glory would be here. He wouldn't be in prison. And here he is in prison, and if you know the story, he is about to be executed the most terrible way. And understandably, John says, hey, are you the one? I was preparing the way for you. Cousin, are you the one or should we expect someone else? And what does Jesus do? He reminds John the words of Isaiah chapter 35. Essentially, he's saying, look, the full blossoming hasn't happened yet, but the crocus has already begun to bloom. And he actually says to him these words, reminds him these words from 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Shall the lame man leap for the deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy? He even says the dead are being raised, John. These things are happening now. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not the fullness of the kingdom yet. John, it's not the glory and the power and the fireworks and the majesty and, and my justice coming down upon this world the way you want it. It's not in your timetable and not what you are expecting, John, because, John, there's something that I have to do first before that day of glory can come. And what is it that he had to do? What is Christmas? We've so sanitized Christmas. Mary and Joseph, pregnant, unmarried. They're on the road. They're not at home. They're on the road to Bethlehem. They get to Bethlehem. No room. Door slammed. The baby's coming. What now? Where do they have to? They're outside. They're not in a home. They're in the stable. Remember, God is doing this on purpose. God could have chosen to have Christ born in a nice cozy house or in a palace for that matter, but God chooses to have the Christ, his son, God himself into this world on a family that's on the road, that's away from their home, outside, they're in a stable. And yes, I, look, we love our manger scenes. I have them all over my house. Again, we have sanitized that. It's little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay and it's sweet smelling and soft. 
Outside in that manger with the animals, there was a young girl who was terrified. There is screaming. There is pain. There is blood. There is feces. A manger that is full of saliva and who knows what. This is a brutal situation. That's what we're supposed to understand and see. God chooses to come into this world, not in a home, not in a palace, but homeless on the road. And you remember Jesus in his earthly ministry more than once. Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Luke, various places record this. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I have come into this world intentionally to be literally homeless. And he goes to the Jerusalem and they take him outside of the city into the wilderness and nail him to the cross. And as he hangs on the cross, he doesn't just say, this hurts, that, you know, th this is physically painful. What does he say? He says, I am forsaken. I have lost my home. I have lost my father, the infinite love between father and son is lost. Unheimlichkeit in a way we can't even possibly imagine the sorrow and the loneliness of that moment that Christ takes on himself. Why? So that you might know even today, no matter what you have done, whatever your sins or how often you have just forgotten about God, turn and run away from home. The father's arms are wide open to you here today. And he's saying, welcome home. Welcome home. And then this, of course, then going back to verse 10, is this great vision, not only 538 BC, but at the end of time, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy. There it is. Shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and signs shall flee away. It even says in verse eight that they go on the way of holiness. Jesus says, I am the way. And here it is, everlasting joy is yours as one day you will fully return home. Now, some of you might say, Okay, I understand why I don't have joy. I understand why if I have a moment of it, it's so elusive and it goes away. And I understand that one day I'm going to have it big time, but what about now? How can I have at least a little bit more joy? And quickly as we wrap up, just a point of application. Why is it that God's people were exiled from their home? Why is it that God's people in 586 BC lost their home in Jerusalem, were taken away and they were exiles? What was the cause of it? It was year after year and generation after generation of idolatry, of turning to false gods. Now again, I know most of you here today are Christians, <clears throat> but let me ask you, where are you, where do you, find your meaning in life, your significance, or security. What is it in? Well, it's Jesus. I know it's Jesus. What else? What? I mean, we all do. This is the first commandment. We all do it. Where are you searching for meaning, for significance, for your security? Is it your career? Is it people's approval of you? 
Is it how much money you make or how much money you have in savings? Is it because of a politi particular political party that's in office or isn't in office? Is it your family or how wonderful your children are or are not? Is it a relationship? Is it, is, it a, is it an individual person? And if they love you, then you feel okay. Is it your looks which are fading? What is it? What, what is it? We all do it. Whatever it is, these are good things. But when you take a good thing, you make it the ultimate thing. If it's not God, it becomes a bad thing. This is, wherever there's worry, wherever the fear, wherever the, the stress is, that's because what we're doing essentially is it's like we live in these beautiful homes, but it's like taking a cardboard box and going outside and curling up in the box out in the cold in a park, spiritually speaking. We make ourselves homeless. We walk our, away from God. We walk away from infinite and true joy for these lesser things all the time, all the time. And it only brings the sorrow and the sadness. Of course, here it is, Advent, Christmas. What is God calling? God is calling you. He's saying, come home. Come home. This is where you will rest. This is where you find peace. This is where there is a true joy, no matter what your circumstances. Come home. God alone be all the glory. Amen.